Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. So the first thing that we were going to talk about is just briefly, because this is going to be a short podcast, um, just the fact that Python passed Java. On the Tyobi Index. On the Tyobi Index. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's all kinds of variations on that, but it's still an interesting data point. And for me, the fact that at least my perception of Python was that it never set out to be the you know a dominant language or anything it was just satisfying the needs of its community yeah and the fact that after all this time it's gotten more and more successful is just it's just interesting it didn't yeah. have any marketing behind it well if you think about python 10 years ago it was just like a thing and people liked it mm -hmm. but like you said there was no there was no like thing from the community of python is like we got to get everyone to use this like it didn't people were like eh. If you want to use it and you like it, great. It's it was not. exactly the opposite because when people complained about it, the, you know, they go, oh, I don't want to use Python because I don't like indentation or whatever. And the Python community's response is, cool. Yeah. We're, yeah. We don't, this, we're not, we're not trying to push anything on you. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So I feel like it's I, really it, interesting. Yeah. And you, you told me something earlier about the, in the Tyobi blog post about some of the speculation on kind of what has helped drive it to yeah to the guy who the guy who um i guess runs the tyobi site or whatever he posted and his his analysis was just that we need more programmers to do you know to solve problems and and they don't all have to be super sophisticated deep you know doesn't require rust to yeah. solve every problem and so there's a whole lot of problems that can be solved with python and people can come up the learning curve and it's a really friendly community and very supportive and very inclusive and so i think that has a huge impact on it yeah i i've done a little bit of python and my impression of it was always that i have no idea about this language like i don't, I don't know anything about python and yet i can be productive and that was always pretty astonishing to me because it's never been to that extent with any other language. There was always like some point where you had to like really kind of understand what was going on. Whereas with Python, you just write code and it works. Yeah, that was my very first experience with it. Um, after discovering Perl and just interactive languages in general, because I had mostly done things like C and C++ and before that assembly, you know, all things where you had to get it all right first before it would run. And so when I played with Perl, it was like, oh, I can just, you know, poke at this thing and play with it and it does stuff. And then I, a couple of weeks later, I couldn't read my own Perl code. And, and then I started looking at Python. And I think the first problem that I was solving was resizing some images or something. Okay. And I thought, well, I bet there's a, I wonder if there's a library that does this. So sure enough, there's a library huh, well, this function here looks like what would resize the image. Eh, it probably won't work, but, you know, and then it worked. And and with going from not knowing anything about solving that problem to having the problem solved and all the bells and whistles was like a half an hour. Yeah. So it was, oh. Just I'm, amazing productivity. Yes, amazing productivity. Yeah. And it has its, you know, I mean, there's, it. Yeah. It, 
So, uh, remember in our episode, we talked about developer experience and yes. what makes a good developer experience. And I mm-hmm. just did a talk on this yesterday, so it's fresh in my mind. Mm-hmm. But in the in my uh, a guy Ray and I's develop uh, it's called the principles of developer experience. The foundation of it is that developer good developer experience is all about productivity. Mm-hmm. And productivity can be measured as how much value does this thing give me uh, over versus how much time does it take me to do this thing. And if you look at... So you have a measure for value? uh, So it's... The way that we the way that we have talked about doing it, which we haven't done a whole lot of like real experimentation to validate our claims of of what good developer experience is. But the way that we claim we can do that is to just ask the user Mm. like like, did you did you were were you able to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the way to measure value in the terms of developer experience is like, like in your case, you were just trying to resize images. Mm-hmm. And so that was your goal. And when you use Python, you were able to accomplish that goal and, and way then you, faster than and, it would and so then that's C++, the time angle. Yeah. And so, so I think that one of the, one of the great reasons why Python has done so well is that really in terms of that definition of developer experience, it has an amazing developer experience for a lot of use cases. I like that idea of just asking the developers, how was your experience? Because it could be all, I mean, there's all kinds of things that could vary and that they can't necessarily put a number on, but they can tell you, yeah, "Yeah, this was, this was good. This was, this was helpful to me. Yeah. Well, so a lot of a lot of like documentation and sites that ask you about your developer experience, it's like just rate this experience, you know. And when you when you look at it that way, it you doesn't mean try and put a number on it. You, uh, just through that que- that framing of the question, mm-hmm. it doesn't actually give you any information as to why it was a bad experience. Mm-hmm. And so what Ray and I were trying to do was was let's let's create ways to measure developer experience that can actually help you understand how you could make it better. And so that was the whole point of the developer principles of developer experience. Um, but anyways, I think through that lens, like, like Python is amazing. Like I, I don't love Python because it doesn't like fit my ideal of a typed functional language and all that. But the productivity is pretty darn amazing. And, and in part because of the language and in part because of the ecosystem, Mm. The, the, like in your case, there was a library that did exactly what you needed, or in a lot of cases, there's a code snippet that you find that does exactly what you need or whatever. So, um, so on that topic, you had a, another developer experience where you took something and completely converted every aspect of it to Kotlin. <laughs> yes. So tell us about that. Yeah. So this was for a session that I did this week called Kotlin Mullets. And the idea of it is, uh, is, um, what is it? Business in the front, party in the back uh-huh. is the mullet. Okay. And and so the the talk is about how how we can use Kotlin on the client side and on the server side, and which is uh, becoming more common. But um, 
what I did, so this is something that I worked on, uh, I started working on about a year ago and did some other presentations on, but I updated it and made some modifications to it for the presentation I did this week. And so it's this fun little app. It's got an Android app that you like wave around in the air and then it sends the data to a server. The server takes the data, turns the accelerometer data from the phone into an image to try to see what you drew and then sends it to an AI service to try to guess what you drew. Hmm. So it's this fun little demo. But uh, but so so everything, every piece of programming in it is Kotlin. So the Gradle build, Kotlin. The Android is all Kotlin. So uh, before an Android, the um, most of Android's history, you would program the UI, uh, the, the view part of the UI in XML. And they've been working to replace that with Kotlin in something called Compose. So now my whole Android UI is all Kotlin. The the like you know in the MVC ish um, I don't know what they call it the architecture for for the view. But um, so the the thing that's actually processing the interactions that's Kotlin. And then the actual definition of the UI is in Kotlin. And they've got a nice DSL for for creating the views and all that. And it was my first time working with Compose, and um, I had some challenges. It wasn't. Uh, it, it's not quite the happy path yet. I can kind of see how how it, it that it's it's gonna get a lot better, but it's still pretty early. So the days problem was it. that it was just that they're still working on it. Yeah. So okay. it's a concrete example was I in when I send the accelerometer data off to the server, that should really be a suspend fun because it's asynchronous to make, make an IO call. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it took me a while to figure out how to have a button click handler that would call a suspend fun. And, uh, and I think I got it working right, but there were uh, unfortunately very few examples. Well, actually there are kind of no examples out there of how to do that, that I could find. So, so that was a little bit of a challenge, but I, th I think I got it working correctly. <laughs> um, so so the, the Android UI is all Kotlin. The Gradle build is all Kotlin. Uh, there's a common library that is shared across the Android, the server, and the web piece. Uh, that's obviously Kotlin data classes, and that one uses Kotlin multi-platform so that it can target different different uh, so JVM and, and JavaScript essentially. Um, so then there's a server piece that I wrote in Micronaut with Kotlin, and that's all suspend fun um, nice stuff there. And then the actual UI for the web that shows you what you drew, that's, uh, has to be JavaScript because it runs in the web, but I use Kotlin JS. So I write that UI. I wrote that UI in Kotlin it generates the JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And then the actual HTML page is also Kotlin because there's the Kotlin X HTML library for writing HTML in Kotlin. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that was all the Kotlin, but it was just like, like every piece of programming was Kotlin. And that was, that was fun. There were some challenges with, fitting all the pieces together and Gradle builds and there's challenges with like getting IntelliJ to work correctly with that project and all that. But it's called AirDraw Demo is the name of the repo. It's on the Google Cloud platform GitHub. So if anyone wants to check it out. Hmm. Um, but I want to add some other pieces to it as well because right now it's Android web and server. But I should be able to also do iOS hmm. using Kotlin Native. And then uh, just this week, 
uh, JetBrains announced Kotlin Desktop. So it's uh, Kotlin native for building desktop applications, which looks really interesting too. So I need to explore adding those pieces into this this project. So would I have to move my monitor around? Is that how I would draw things? <laughs> I, I'm i not sure what I'm going to do with the desktop part. Maybe it just um, use the mouse, I suppose. Oh, yeah. We could yeah. just, yeah. Yeah. This is not quite as much fun. It would be cool if your mouse had an accelerometer and you could wave it around. But uh, So I do want to do a Raspberry Pi or mm. Arduino, something like that with Kotlin Native. And I have the the accelerometers that I can use in a Raspberry Pi or whatever to, to do that. So that, that'll be another one is do a little IoT uh, so and then was, I could take a Raspberry Pi and wave it around in the air. There you go. What, what was the experience? I mean, did you, was it noticeable that you didn't have to switch languages? I mean, did that change your productivity or your developer developer experience i i do think that there's some benefit to the code sharing that you can do across the different ones in my case my data model was really simple so it really wouldn't have been hard to recreate the data model across different clients but it was nice that i didn't have to and i'm sure that for a larger project where you had a more complicated data model it, it that shows its value more for me, I'm pretty used to polyglot programming, yeah. so it's not that hard for me to hop between five different languages, mm -hmm. except for whenever I go to JavaScript, I always write println instead of console.log. That's the hardest thing about switching <laughs> languages. But um, oh, that's that's interesting, because I know that, I mean, I, I always heard that like one of the big arguments for Node was because I know JavaScript and so I want to be able to program JavaScript everywhere. Yeah. And so I'm always kind of curious as to how big of an impact that is because yeah. it seems like you, you also pay a price yeah. for that. Yep. Yeah, it's, there, there are certainly challenges, I think, with that universal language concept because mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're working with an abstraction over some other thing. And so there's always places where things get a little bit weird. Like, so in my case, I spent a few hours debugging a problem where when I tried to run my JavaScript client, I was trying to call is not empty on a list. So my, my list is defined in Kotlin. I was trying to call is not empty on it uh, from the JavaScript side, you know, like in my Kotlin JS code. And when I ran, it compiled fine and converted to JavaScript fine. But when I ran it, it would say like, is not empty is doesn't exist on this thing. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> this has just got to be a bug somewhere. And I know that they're like reworking the whole Kotlin JS backend and all that kind of stuff, but it's just, I'm sure it's just a bug. Anyways, I was like, at some point I try exhausted all ideas on how to deal with this. And I was like, let me just change list to array or something. And all of a sudden it magically worked. I'm like, okay, clearly like just a bug, but, but that's just an example of like, mm -hmm. like there, there are challenges and there are bugs when we're working with these things that generate code for other platforms. And it's, um, mm. it's never as easy as it sounds. So, mm -hmm. so is it, is it worth it? Like, like in the real world, this is just a demo. Like in the real world, would I do? I think this is like a viable approach. Like I don't know. Like, maybe not yet. Maybe not I mean, yet. Yeah. Yeah. It still I, seems kind of early. Because I I'm also on board with you about polyglot programming. Just use the language that does the best job for the project. Yeah. You know, and 
use multiple languages if that solves your problem. Yeah. I think, I think where things could get more interesting around this idea of like a universal language is around also a unified, um, UI programming model. Mm. So I think that's where a lot of the cognitive overhead comes in is that, that it's like the language isn't that hard. It's all the things around the language on top of the language. If I were to do this, the same thing in like TypeScript, I would probably use Reactor, like some, some more web friendly UI framework. And so then I'm like switching between like compose and Android and react in for the browser. And if I did like a desktop or some other iOS version, you know, I'd be switching my, my UI programming model and UI is just one kind of place where this exposes itself. Asynchronous stuff is another, it's nice to use coroutines everywhere, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so but but this this is not reality yet with at least with Kotlin to have a universal UI programming model. Uh, their Compose does work with Kotlin, the newly announced Kotlin desktop stuff, which is nice. But I think I've seen stuff around using Compose for web applications, and if they got that piece, then it's like okay. Then you know, like I think it's going to take years to like work out all the bugs and kinks and all that kind of stuff. But I think that's when it becomes much more interesting is not just like sharing your data classes and some a little little bit of logic around, but being able to really have a consistent programming experience end to end for all the different different um, languages. And I don't know what the deal is with like Compose for for Kotlin native on iOS. So still more exploration there. But Mm -hmm. I want to believe that this could be a could be a happy path in the future. But I'm I'm not convinced that it is yet. Well, and I mean Google has that, um, you know, UI everywhere. Oh, Flutter. Flutter, or, right? Yeah. And I know that they're putting Flutter for the desktop as well. Uh, so. Yeah, I did see that. So that's also promising. Yeah, if I could use Kotlin and Flutter, like that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. But it's it is interesting that Google has has Flutter and and Compose. And, oh, and Angular, like mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of different UI frameworks from. Do a but, lot of experiments. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were also talking about um, making un. Oh, this is a states. topic that's come up. We've kind of touched on a few times, uh, but we never have gone into much detail about it. So the the. It comes from that world of Haskell, which I don't know anything about the world of Haskell, but that's, I I believe, where the statement comes from. And it's that um, this idea that you want to make illegal states unrepresentable. And an example of this is if in my program I, I have a list that can never be empty, like it always has to have more than zero items in it. If you just use a standard list, that's that's not. You, you your type system and really this is just about type systems because I think if you don't have a type system you can't you can't really do this so um, so it's really about in when you have a type system making your type systems represent what the what the legal states are so if if something cannot be an empty list and you just use list then your type system is actually not conveying that 
that uh, characteristic that you that you're requiring and so uh so there's this this push from haskell folks and i've been i'm totally on board too even though i'm not a haskell person to make your type system as accurately reflect the constraints that that you want to convey so but this you're talking about static checking right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know if you could do it any other way. Well, I mean, maybe. Sure. I mean, you could just say, here's my list, uh, if it ever has. I mean, it's like preconditions and postconditions. You just check. Yeah. Well, so I guess that's a, that's a good point to clarify is that I think that the statement really means that it shouldn't pass a compiler or validation step. And so maybe you could use a linter or something like that. I don't know. But, um, but in your case, where you're saying you could do preconditions, what that is is an exception or some some sort of error handler that you only see at runtime, and that's exactly what what the idea is trying to say is things that you can validate in the type system, validate in the type system so that it won't compile with invalid states, mm-hmm. um, and so so that's how it's different from. Uh, I think dynamic languages or non-statically typed languages is I think you can only do or statically, statically typed, typed languages that don't have that kind of support where you have to put in preconditions and postconditions. So there's there's some aspects to this that get a little more in the weeds and I don't I'm not an expert on on kind of the type theory parts of it but there are there are like four ways that a type system can can um, provide constraints and the the fourth one which scala which i uh, use a lot doesn't have is called value dependent types and these in your type system you can actually encode the constraints like a kind of like a type proof and uh, these are the things like how long your array is right exactly okay. yeah that would be something you could encode into the type which system. is the only example that i've ever heard of that by the way yeah so i'm that makes me a little suspicious well, so that uh, I've oh, I could give you a lot of examples. Okay, all right, yeah. good then. Um, you don't have to now. Okay, but but, <laughs> but but as long as they're there. Yeah, yeah. So so the builder pattern. I've been on this like rage path against builders, mm-hmm. as everyone who listens to this knows. Um, but that's been one of my big kind of knocks against the builder pattern is that the builder intentionally doesn't convey the constraints in the builder. It does when you call, it can when you call that build, but that's not making illegal states unrepresentable. Mm. And so you, I'm working on this, this uh, example where I'm taking all the ways that we use builders and showing, showing people how you can instead encode the constraints for those things in the type system and make illegal states unrepresentable instead of trying to do it with a, with a builder. Um, and so where this comes down to ADTs, uh, algebraic data types, which we've talked about before, is that there's a lot of times when you when ADTs become a good way to represent something that can be one thing or another thing, as an example. Um, so, so yeah, I, in my rage path against builders, I'm, I keep pointing out to people, like, your builder doesn't do this, and that's one of the problems with it. So my concern with these more and more elaborate type systems is the complexity that it could impose upon the programmer. And I think, I feel like we came across this when we were 
um, interviewing Cedric, and he was he was making the argument for the you know null return value to be able to chain operations together versus full-on monads. Yeah, and I think his argument was basically, well, you know, you have a complexity trade-off, and yeah. so that's what um, that's what concerns me about this language that you're describing <laughs> is like how complex is it going to get to be able to achieve those things yeah. and, and and are you going to have the is it going to pay off yeah 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 it, i i agree there there is a complexity cost to it to to trying to make your program be um not able to represent illegal states uh and I guess like I I'm totally bought into the idea, so I'm I I value this enough that I'm it's worth it for me to to make this trade off in most cases. But you but, but you don't really know what the trade off is yet, though, do you? Yeah, because I mean it could become just massively complex to represent these things. So yeah, so oh, it already is like yeah. like yeah, and it's it it can be a lot harder to deal with monads or ADTs than just deal with something that that can be null. And so I think this relates to our conversation about how like there's there's the the act there's the happy path that we want to be on. But there's a gap between like the real happy path and the like making the programming model easy and approachable, you know. And so so I think I think the question is like, can we converge those two things? Like just as an example, yeah. Having actual like, like nullability, uh, having a method that returns a value or returns null really is a simple programming model until you have to think about the possibility that it can be null. But if you don't want to think about the possibility that it can be null, like it's a lot simpler to just look at a method and be like, oh, this thing turns, returns an int. And like that's simple. But if you want to think about like, okay, this method can return an int or it might be null, then all of a sudden you need some added complexity to help you address that. And Kotlin did a great job of addressing that complexity, or you could use ADTs or you could use monads, but, but yeah, definitely there is, there is a complexity cost to it. And I wonder like, like with nullability, Kotlin's decided that the complexity, the added complexity was worth it. Um, well, and I think they were looking at it in comparison to monads, you know, they were going, uh, monads are too much. And this is, you know, we can add a few operators in the language and, and force you to deal with anything that's nullable. And so that's a reasonable compromise. Yeah. And, but it, it's, it also feels like a transition path. Yeah. And at some point it would be nice to have something I don't know, more monadic where we could, but, but then you've got that complexity factor yeah. and, you know, I can't compose two functions until I understand, you know, <laughs> flat map yeah. and, and why yeah. and all that, you know, so it's like, oh, you know, it's giving us these benefits. I mean, going back to, to Python, it has, you know, it, it allows you to go in and just kind of flail around and get something done and yeah you're leaving a lot of 
uh, possible failures on the table, and um, yet you're able to get this thing done without massive amounts of complexity. So there's yep. your yep. there's your trade-off. Yeah. And, and well, in, in my experience with Elm, because uh, I really wanted to to get Elm, and there were parts of it that I just couldn't wrap my head around. Yeah. And um, it, yeah, whereas jQuery was just like so easy, you know, it's, it's like you do this, yeah, you do this, yeah. right? Yeah, right. And and it's like, it, oh, man, it's it's so tough because what is what is the happy path? Yeah, you know, and the happy path maybe okay, I can easily define. Uh, an ADT here, and then it's taken care of, and it it's got my back if I start messing up. Yeah, and then if it's easy enough. Yeah, but then if I, if I have to understand these really sophisticated concepts in order to write Hello World. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's I I think it is trade offs, but what I really wonder, like you look at Kotlin's nullability question mark stuff. It really made dealing with nullability easy enough that I think people are willing to 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 have that front front and center in the programming model. Mm-hmm. And Kotlin did that with nullability. I don't even I don't know if they were the first ones or not that did that. But um, I, I think well, most of their they they like intentionally stole features from yeah. other languages, so it might have come C-sharp from C sharp or typescript C-sharp, or something. I think it yeah. might have been C sharp. Yeah. yeah. So. But uh, so I wonder, are what else is going to have that same path? Like, mm-hmm. like in in five years, are we going to be like, oh, ADTs are just have been made so easy by this this language that that now they're just generally the way that we do things? Because they're going in Python. In the next version of Python, it looks like there's going to be ADTs. Yeah, so. and I think Java is getting something like ADTs as well. Not not quite in the same way as others, but yeah, Python is getting ADTs. So. Um, and then, you know, maybe 10 years out, like we'll be talking about monads in this way. I'd be like, be like, oh, yeah, monads are so easy now. Mm-hmm. So so I think there is this natural evolution towards making the happy path easier to do correctly. And um, and so so but right now, like I I live in the reality of trying as hard as I can to make illegal states unrepresentable. And it's the way that I want to program, but I've totally bought into dealing with some of the pain and struggle that comes along with that. Cause you have had enough experience that you see the benefits of not having to think about that aspect of things. You just go, Oh, it'll never, the state machine can never go into that state. Yeah. And I've invested, you know, many years into Scala, which, which makes it a little bit easier to, to do this with the type system. Um, so I think I've, I've learned the tools well enough that, whereas I think for most, I think for most programmers, if I tried to like put, if I tried to say, okay, now use Scala to, to make your illegal states unrepresentable, they like, well, like, I mean, you have to explain the concept of, of making the illegal states unrepresentable and then convince them that it's worth all the effort and then teach them the mechanisms to do that. And that's, yeah, yeah I think you're going to, at least for the time being, that's that's a big hurdle. Yeah. There's another one that's another interesting aspect to this that is, I think, called phantom types or type aliases in Haskell. Um, 
and I may be getting this wrong, but, but the idea, as far as I understand it, is a lot of times in your code, you'll say, uh, all right, this method takes a string. And so you can pass it any old string you want. But what you can also do is create a type alias for something, a type that essentially extends string. And so now let's say that you have a method that takes an account ID. The actual type of the thing that you're taking is not a string, it's an account ID. It's something of type account ID. But you work with it just like a string, but this prevents you from accidentally passing a um, string. A, a string that is not an account ID to this mm -hmm. thing is that you get some validation in the type system. And so it becomes much more evident like, oh, I tried to pass a uh, a person ID instead of an account ID to this thing. And the compiler will the, tell you that. Exactly. It the compiler says, says, no. like That's not what you said you were going to use here. You yeah. Know, so it's a little tighter. So it's this lightweight way to, and a string is just one example. Like you could do it with any type essentially, but, mm -hmm. but com coming up with more specific names for things that the compiler can then validate on. It's not foolproof because you could certainly accidentally, uh, when you create the, the person ID, make it an account ID. And then the compiler says, you're all good. Like, like it's not, you know, it can't, it, there yeah, are things that a, can't protect you. Against, but there's but, a, there's a trail. I mean, you could go find, you can go see where you, yeah, where you do that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's something I've been using more in my programs is these, mm -hmm. there's a couple different ways to do it in Scala, which is unfortunate that it's not quite built into the language. Like I think it is with Haskell, but so is that, any, I don't know if there is a way to do this in Kotlin or not, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there is a, yeah, I'm pretty sure there is an alias thing. I don't know that yeah. we, that we talked about it much, but it's like a type def in C++. Yeah. yeah, it's not that new of a concept, but I don't think it gets a lot of use. So this is a little bit different than in Scala, you can say type foo, uh, what is it, equals string or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so then you get a, a, a new type foo that is just a string. But in, when you do it that way, and let's say you have a method that takes a foo, you can still pass a string to it. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't actually require you to to um, past the, the type that you have just created an alias for, you can still pass the underlying type. So it's not actually giving you the, the, the compiler guards that, that you really want. So that, so there are, um, uh, so there, I think there are some languages that have these like type aliases, but it's not exactly what, what, uh, what I'm talking about with okay. these phantom types or, right. or type aliases or new types or something. So is this idea of, um, making illegal states unrepresentable. Is that something that could be, say, a chapter in a book on Scala? Is that what's that, interesting is, is it's it's a it's a verbiage that gets tossed around a lot, yeah. but I've never seen much content where people actually talk about what it really looks like and what it means. How you design that way. Yeah. 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 So it seems uh, like ripe for coverage. Yeah. I think John DeGoes has, has done a good job. He comes, or at least has a lot of experience in the Haskell world and brings that to Scala. So I've seen content from him that, that, that talks a lot about this. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been, been uh, helpful for me. But, but I don't know if I've seen many people that are like, okay, you're a Java programmer, you're writing builders. Here's why that's wrong. And it kind of goes into 
some more concrete examples of how Java developers in particular could could embrace this and what it, and why it would be good for them to do Maybe so. that's how you're going to make your mark on the world. That's right. It's the, crus- the, the anti-builder crusade. Yeah. I think that's the second crusade I've launched on this podcast. Yeah. But... Oh, the first one was on custom DSLs. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, custom declarative languages. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, I'm getting. I have too many, too many uh, crusades up in the air right now. I need to. I need to focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Or I could just pick the next one and move on to it. That's true. You could just start crusades and then get them going and then move on. And move on to the next one. Yes. Well. Um. Well, with that. I think that's that's today's podcast. Yep. All right. Thanks for listening.